Blessings, friends. Pastor Nick here today with our Nesting with Jesus reading in the beautiful, blessed book of Isaiah. We are in chapter 9. We have made it up to this point in our teaching. We have already looked at a few verses in the front part of this chapter, and we're going to ask God to help us. We want to hear from Him. We need His teaching. We need His guidance. We want to see things in the beautiful Word of God that only He can illuminate to us. It is our responsibility to chew on it, to ponder it, to meditate upon it. That is our responsibility. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter number 2 and verse number 7, Consider the things which I have said. Consider the living Word of God the things that were spoken, chew on them, meditate upon them, get all you can out of them, and may the Lord add understanding or give you understanding in all things. That is God's responsibility. The understanding comes from Him, but the responsibility to diligently consider it, to seek it, to search for it, that's our responsibility. That's why I'm here right now. That's why I'm doing what I do. That's what I do every day of my life, whether I will uh, publicly share some of these things with you or, or not. I long to chew the cud of the Word of God, to meditate upon it. I delight in it, and I want to hear from Him. I want to know Him. I want to know Him more personally and intimately, and I want to make what I know of him known. I want to share those things with people so that they can hear him, see him, glory in him, treasure him, love him, like him, be fond of him, and go make him known as well. So let's ask God for help as we study his word today. I believe that he will grant these things to us. So Father, we come to you, we praise you, we glorify you. We ask for your help in this. You must teach. You must give us the understanding. We are positioning ourselves to search these things out, to seek them out. It is your glory to conceal a matter, but it's the glory of kings to search out a matter. You have made us through the precious blood of Jesus, both kings and priests, that we need to know you and declare you and your ways, that when people seek the law of the Lord, the ways of God upon our mouths, upon our life, that we can adequately and accurately, as Paul would say, as he asked the church to pray for him, that when he spoke the word of God, that he would speak it with authority, that he would speak it with authenticity, and that he would speak it accurately. And if anybody would be able to do that effectively in in the modern church history, it would have been him. But he needed others praying with him uh, for that to take place. And that's what we're asking for today, that the brethren would pray with me and that they would ask God to show us what needs to be shown and that you will reveal it to us what we what we need. I believe as Romans teaches us that these things were written for our learning, that through the patience and the comfort of the Scriptures, we might have hope, an unashamed, undisappointing, a hope that will never disappoint, 
And as Hebrews teaches us, that if we are to go on in any aspect of the kingdom and grace life, if we're to go on from the elementary principles, if we're to go on in maturity, it has to be if you permit it. So we're asking for your permission to continue to grow, to grow in grace so that we can grow as we go through the things of life with your revelation and understanding. Thank you for being our light. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 9, verse number 6. We know that the prophetic word was going to be for 700 and something years that those who sat in darkness shall see a light. We know that light, according to the Newer Testament, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself who walked through Galilee proclaiming the kingdom of God was at hand. It was near. It was there. Him being God in flesh. And that's what we see in chapter number 9 and verse number 6. How is this going to happen? For unto us, that is us, just like Emmanuel, it was God with us. For unto us a child is born. That child, we know who he is. That child is none other than the child of Mary, the mother of Jesus, who was born of the Spirit of God, for the Spirit of God. He was conceived of God himself. But Mary, being favored by God, was approached by him, came to, uh, to her, and God revealed to her that she was going to be with child and that child would be of God himself and that God was, uh, he was going to use that child, Emmanuel, God with us. He was going to use him to save his people from their sins. And it was Mary's child and that child was going to be for the rise and fall of many in Israel and around the world. That's what the, the prophet told her when they brought the child into the temple, that he would be for the rise and fall. And this is that child. This is the Messiah. This is the anointed one. And it says, unto us a son is given. That is, the son of God is given unto us. Mary had a son that was conceived of God and God gave us his only begotten son and therefore we see that Jesus is both man and God. His uniqueness in the virgin birth for which was already prophesied by Isaiah in chapter number 7, spoken again of in chapter number 8 of this prophetic promises that not only was God with them in that day, in the days of Isaiah, but God was going to be with us for the word of God who was in the beginning, that would be the son of God, was going to take upon flesh and dwell among his people to save his people, his sheep, from their sins. And that son is none other than the son of God, the Lord of David, for whom would be the, the, the branch, who would be of the stem of Jesse, who was also the root of Jesse. He was the origin of Jesse, as well as the branch of Jesse. That'd be David's father. He was both. 
because he and only he could be that. And that is the exclusivity of Jesus for no one ever in the history of mankind had been born like the uniqueness of the Lord Jesus Christ. He had to be born of a virgin so that he could not only live as a man and he could live a sinless sacrificial life, but that he could be the substitution of those that would put their faith in him and therefore his royal, his uncontaminated, his unpolluted, his sinless life and blood would be sufficient to forgive us polluted people like myself forgiveness, that my sins could be forgiven, that your sins could be forgiven. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And Jesus laid his life down once, once to save those that believe upon him with an everlasting salvation, a salvation that is rooted in eternity past in Christ and a salvation that will last for an eternity. The salvation of the sheep of God, the disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are born from above, those who are born again by the Spirit of God, made new creatures in Christ Jesus, their salvation, our salvation, my salvation, rests on both sides of time because it rests in him who is eternal. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government, the kingdom operationing reign of God, the governing rule and reign of God will be placed upon his shoulders to bear. He will bear that responsibility. Only Jesus as the king on the throne of David, who was going to raise up the tabernacle of David. He who is going to rule and reign with a rod of iron. He who is going to establish his kingdom in the hearts of men in these days of grace, but will one day return in the conclusion of of human history, and that is when the Messiah comes and returns again and sets up his earthly kingdom upon the earth, we find that that rule and reign is going to begin. And he gives us a clue of us that it says that he's going to set it up, he's going to order it, he's going to establish it with, with judgment, with his ways and justice, from that time forward, even forever, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This has the full commitment of God. And we who are part of his government, who are part of his rule, who've been made subject to him through the blood of his cross, through the life that he lived and that sacrificial death that he laid his life down for the Father and became a substitute in God's wrath that was unleashed and poured out upon him so that we could be delivered from the hand of our enemies, 
that we could be delivered to unashamed, unadulterated service in righteousness and holiness all the days of our life. Because when God takes us from one dominion and kingdom, that is, we was under the dominion of darkness, and he translates or transfers us into the kingdom of the love of his son, which Colossians talks about, we were taken out of, of one kingdom that we was under the sway of the prince of the power of the air. We were under that deception and that darkness, and we operated in that kingdom in without any strength, ungodly. Hostile, rebellious sinners, not looking for Jesus, not longing for Jesus, not wanting Jesus, but he came unto us, he interrupted us, invaded us with his grace, forcefully dragged us out of the kingdom of darkness as Colossians teaches us and transfers us into the government or the reign or the rule of the kingdom of the love of his son. And that is, he takes us out of darkness and brings us into the light. And this is the divine, supernatural work of God. And God says that he is zealousness. He is zealous over it. He is passionate about it. There is a burning, consuming fire to rescue his sheep. As Jesus said, I lay my life down for the sheep. And not only for these sheep, I have uh, another fold and that the folds may be one. I give my life for the Father has given me authority to lay my life down. No man takes my life. I lay it down and I have authority and power to raise it up again. John chapter 10. This is all the work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the anointed one, who was anointed by God with the Spirit of God to preach glad tidings to the poor in spirit, and that is his work. And the scripture says that that government, that reign will be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful. His name shall be called Counselor. His name shall be called Mighty God. His name shall be called Everlasting Father. His name shall be called Prince of Peace. Or he should be known as Wonderful and Counselor and Mighty God and Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Who's going to know him in that way? The ones who are part of his kingdom, the ones who are under his reign, the ones that the government of this kingdom has been placed upon his shoulders, the ones who see him as a son of God and as the son of Mary, as the child for which he gave. He is known to them as being wonderful, marvelous, extraordinary. I mean, he is known to be precious. He's the only begotten son of God. This exclusivity of Jesus, for there is no one, no one like him. There was never one before, never one will be like him. He is stands alone as holy, 
as unique and exclusive. And that is what separates us from every other people on the planet of all time is the exclusivity of being hidden in him who's marvelous or wonderful. That stone of stumbling who is the elect or the uh, selection or the chosen of God to be the cornerstone that we build our life around and align to and upon. I think it's over in Peter. Let's go look in Peter for a moment. Look in 1 Peter chapter number 2. 1 Peter chapter number 2 about knowing him as wonderful, as marvelous, as extraordinary treasure that we have. In 1 Peter chapter number 2, the passage begins like this in verse number 1. Therefore, laying aside all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy and envy and all evil speaking, that is just the works or the part of that carnal side of the flesh, and as newborn babes, we desire the pure milk of the word that we may grow thereby. That is to say, seeing that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. One of the reasons, one of the main reasons that we see the Lord as being wonderful is because, we, because of the effect of the grace of God in our life. And that grace of God by way of the Spirit of God continues to exalt and magnify the Lord Jesus Christ. And we have tasted that He is good. Anytime I've ever eaten anything that is good, that I really like, I share, I share that with other people. I, I pass that word on. I get excited about things that taste really good. And when I, whether it be something that I've... Uh, drink or whether it be something that I eat or an experience in my life, when it tastes good, when I like what I'm consuming, I want to share that with my wife. I want to share that with my children. I want to share that with other people. And I know there's times because everybody's taste buds are different, they just not going to like some of the things I like. But I want to tell you, that's not going to keep me from making an effort to define and describe and share with them uh, how good this particular thing was and how much I like it whether it be some homemade homemade banana pudding ice cream or whether it be some grilled chicken or beef liver or fried chicken liver. See, I like liver. And I know not everybody likes liver. Liver is one of those things uh, that's a lot like Christ in the sense that either you like him or you don't. And when you like him, you really like it. And when you don't like him, you really don't like it. Liver is one of those things that, that there's not much of a middle ground in it. Most people that enjoy liver really, really, really enjoy it. I mean, they like it and they don't mind telling other people they like it. But the average person doesn't want to touch it, don't want anything to do with it. They can't stand it. Even me talking about it right now, you don't like talking about it. Well, you see, that's how Christ is. That when you like him, you, you love him. You can't help it. He is a treasure. You're going to talk about it. But if you don't like him, you're not going to talk about him at all. It's like people with grandchildren. 
You get people talking about their grandchildren, they won't shut up. You get me talking about my grandchildren, I'm going to tell you all kind of things about them. I love them. I like them. I like spending time with them. I, I, I like watching them grow. I like pouring into them. And if you wanted to talk about them, like you, if you have grandchildren or your children, you're going to want to, you, you can talk about them because you know them. You know what they like. You see them growing and maturing. You know the things you want for them and the things you'll do for them. And I mean, you can talk, you can talk, you can talk. Well, anybody that likes Jesus wants to know more about him. And when they know more about him, they're going to talk about him. And if you have trouble, if anybody I know that has trouble talking about Jesus, they have trouble because they don't know who he is because you can't know him and not like him. You can't know him and not love him because it is a supernatural work of the grace of God that not only do we see that God is gracious, but we see that God is good and that God is gentle. He's been so good to us. As the scripture says, he who has been forgiven of much loves much. And whether you have been uh, forgiven of great and tragic sins or that you're fairly new to life in general and you haven't been out there and done a whole lot of sin and it doesn't matter the degree and depths of any sin that you've been, been freed from in the kingdom of God, no matter how long you've been living or how short you've been living, sin has a wage, and that wage is death, and sin multiplies upon sin, and when Jesus forgives you of any sin which has the high cost of death, you cannot, I cannot, but love him for forgiving me of that sin. So when, when you don't treasure Jesus, that means you don't treasure what he's done for you because you can't see what he's done for you and you haven't tasted that he is good and gracious because I want to tell you that is what he is and you can't help but talking about him. Amen. Verse number four says, coming to him as to living as to a living stone. Yes, he's rejected indeed by men. He's like that liver rejected by men, but he is chosen by God and he is precious. I want to tell you, God's son is wonderful. He is precious not only to us, but he is precious to the Father. He is precious. He is God's select stone. There's not another stone that can be built around. He has not chosen any other way. He is exclusive. There is no other name given unto men by which men shall be saved. There is no other way to the Father. Not, now, a lot of times people emphasize a place when it comes to heaven. But Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And where I go, he says, you know the way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to who? The Father except through me. 
You see, when I'm focused on places and not the person, that's the difference between how I'm going to live in this life and how I would live if I know that I am living for a person, if I'm on my way to a person. Yes, that, that will include all that the person has that he is building, but I'm on my way to him. I'm going to him, the Father, and the only way to the Father is through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ who is precious in the sight of God, who is God's only way, who is God's only life, who is God's only path, who is God's only truth. He, Jesus, 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 He is the only way to the Father. And God has no other answer. God has no other solution for this life. He has no other solutions for wisdom. He has no other solution for righteousness. He has no other solutions for sorrow. He has no other answer for joy. He has no other solution for death. He has no other solution for the grave. He has no other answer for eternal life. He has one answer and that answer is His precious Son and He means everything. He says, verse 5, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices which are acceptable to God through him who is precious, that is Jesus. That's the only way that we're accepted in the beloved in Jesus. Therefore, it is also contained in the scriptures where it says, behold, we need to see this by faith. God says, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone. He's elect, he is selected and chosen by God based on uh, God's choice and his life and his sacrifice and substitution, this eternal work of God, and he is precious, and he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. They will not be ashamed of him. They will not cower from him. They will not be put on the run to go find what? Another stone to build their life around. That's the idea. They will not be put to shame when they build their life on him. And they also will not be ashamed and say, well, I don't like that particular stone. I think I'm going to go build my life upon another cornerstone. That's exactly what the Jews did. They chose that the stone that God chose was not precious. He was not elect. They felt like they had a, a, a better way. So they went with that way and they stumbled all over that. But verse 7 says, Therefore to you who believe, to all you who believe, if you believe, He, Jesus, is a treasure. He is precious. He is costly. But to those who are un persuaded, who are disobedient. The word disobedient simply means unpersuaded. They are apathetic to this stone. Uh, it does not move them. It does not stir them other than to stay away from. They have no feelings, no concern for, no delight in, no, no treasuring for, no love for. He is, they are unpersuaded that he is elect and precious 
He is not costly nor treasure. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being unpersuaded to the promise, to the word to which they were also appointed. When you are unpersuaded of Jesus, you can't help but stumble all over that stone. He, he won't be precious to you. They were, they were appointed and it was laid before them, the word of God. They had that according to Psalm 147, unlike any other nation. But they, all they, you know what the people of God, what the people of, of, of Israel wanted more than anything? You know what they were looking for when Jesus came? They are still looking for it today. They're not looking for someone to come and deliver them from their sins because they don't think they are sinners. They don't think they're in bondage to that. They don't think they need that. Um, they are looking for somebody to come and rebuild a temple for them. That's all they're looking for. Just come and build us a temple. That temple of the Lord has been a problem for the people of God for a long, long time. All they wanted is somebody to come build them a temple and deliver them from the people of this world. And that was not the intent of the Lord Jesus. Not when he came the first time. That wasn't it. They stumbled all around it. Matter of fact, the Antichrist, when he appears and comes on the scene, Israel as a whole will make an alliance with him. They're going to trust him. Why? because he's going to give them what they've always wanted. They want a rebuilt temple. That's what they're looking for. And they're going to see him as their Messiah because they're going to be on a delusion because they have not received the love of the truth. They're going to believe the lie and they are going to be in agreement with and they're going to go in the covenant with the Antichrist, their solution, because he is going to set it up for them to build what they always wanted. If you went over and looked at Ezekiel chapter 24, matter of fact, let's go look at Ezekiel 24. We'll see this. Now we're talking about the difference between him who is wonderful and how the people of that day saw the temple being the marvelous thing, the extraordinary, wonderful thing. And as a result, Jesus said, even after they come out of the temple that day, remember when the widow threw in her mites and he said, you see this widow, she's threw in out of her poverty. And they, they mocked it when they walked outside. This is what happened. The disciples come outside and they looked around and they said, Jesus, you see all these buildings? You see these great stones that have been laid up here? These magnificent stones, these costly, beautifully prepared buildings and stones of this temple. It, it takes more than widow's mites to build things like this. Now, this is the dullness of the disciples. This is what they were caught up in, just the natural. And they, they, they refer to that. Jesus said this. He says, I tell you what, you see these stones, you see all these buildings, not one is going to be left upon another. They're all going to be thrown down. And you're going to destroy this. This temple's going to be destroyed, which he was talking about himself. And I'll raise it up the third day. He is building a spiritual house. And anybody that sees him as the chief cornerstone sees him 
as wonderful. The most extraordinary thing they know or ever will know is Him. But when you put your focus on things, marvelous things, you can't help but get tripped up with the lies that support those things. In Ezekiel 24, God says this word. He referred to the temple as being their stronghold or being their arrogant pride, what they boasted in more. Not, not, not God, not Him. He wasn't their stronghold. He wasn't what they boasted in. He wasn't what they were delighted in. They were more concerned over that temple being destroyed and their names being put through mud than God being grieved over their sinfulness. So in Ezekiel 24, we see this visual picture of how Ezekiel became the living illustration. Verse 15 says, Also the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, behold, I take away from you the desire of your eyes with one stroke. Yet you shall neither mourn nor weep, nor shall you your tears run down. Sigh in silence. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind your turban on your head and put your sandals on your feet. Do not cover your lips and do not eat man's bread of sorrow. Like when people will bring you food at a after someone in your family dies to show their comfort and their support of you. He said, don't receive it. Don't take it. Verse 18, so I spoke to the people in the morning and at evening, Ezekiel's wife died. God took her. And the next morning, I did exactly as I was commanded. And the people said to me, will you not tell us what these things signify, why you're doing what you're doing, why you're behaving like this? This is out of the ordinary. This is so unusual. Verse 20 says, then I answered them, the word of the Lord came to me saying, speak to the house of Israel. And thus says the Lord God, behold, y'all need to see this by faith. I, God, will profane my sanctuary. That sanctuary is your arrogant boast. That sanctuary is the desire of your eyes. That sanctuary is the delight of your soul. And your sons and your daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword. That is, some people had already defected. They, they turned themselves over. Some people stayed behind and this was about to happen. Nebuchadnezzar was going to destroy everything. And those that were already in Babylon were going to get a word of what happened to the walls and what happened to the temple and what happened to the city and what happened to their children that were left behind. And he says in verse number 22, And you shall do as I have done. You shall not cover your lips nor eat man's bread of sorrow. Your turban shall be on your heads and your sandals on your feet. You shall neither mourn nor weep, but you shall pine away in your iniquities and mourn with one another. Thus Ezekiel is assigned to you according to all that he has done. You shall do. And when this comes, because it's coming, you shall know that I am the Lord God and you, son of man. Will it not be in that day when I take from them who I've sent you to to bear this word, when I take from them their stronghold, which was that temple, 
When I take away from them their joy, which was that temple, when I take away from them their glory, which was that temple, when I take away the desire of their eyes, which was that temple, and on that which they set their minds, and what did they set their minds on? Their sons and their daughters. On that day, one who escapes will come to you. And that one that comes to you is just going to bear the bad news. That's all he is. He's a messenger of misery. To let you hear with your ears what had happened. And on that day, your mouth will be open to him who has escaped. And you shall speak and no longer be mute. Thus you will be assigned to them and they shall know that I am the Lord. That God takes sin serious. So serious that God sent his son to this world to be a propitiation for it, to, to place our sin upon him who was without any sin. So here we see, I mean, this, this temple, who what they thought to be the wonderful, marvelous, extraordinary thing, and disregarded the one who built the temple, who gave them life, who... All this was about, they got distracted with what things were about, not with him. And it affected how they live. And they were more concerned, their minds were consumed with the pleasure and the delight and the growth and of their children than they were the will of God. And their children dictated and ruled what would happen next in their everyday life. And they were governed by that. They were governed by this temple. It was their downfall. It was their stronghold that had them trapped. And they were more burdened over what had happened to it than the fact that they had transgressed and sinned and missed the mark with God. Wow. Now we can see just the the compassion of the Lord when he took upon flesh to die for people like us, like them. And that he is that spiritual house of the chief cornerstone that everything that God is doing is being aligned and built around that. You cannot help but see when you have tasted that good and gracious and gentle work of God in Christ, that, oh, Lord, have mercy. He is good and he is treasured. You can't help but talk about it. You can't help but declare it. That's why if you look in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, 1 Corinthians 16 says this. Paul gives this word at the close of his writings to the church at Thessalonica. And he is saying, I know that there have been people who made professions and claims that they know and trust Jesus. And this is what he says. He says, if anyone, in verse 22 of 1 Corinthians 16, if any person, if anyone, if any person does not love, and that word love is a phileo love, that is a, have an affection for, a brotherly kind of affection, like a, a, a love that you like, really like. If anyone does not like, is not fond of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, let him, that same person, still be anathema, 
accursed. Oh, come Lord Jesus. That is simply saying that we don't leave them in that position. We just need to know that that person, no matter what claim they've made, no matter what they've said, if they are not fond of the Lord Jesus Christ, they do not know him. Why? Because everybody that knows him, he is precious. He is costly. He is everything. He is wonderful. This child, this son, who the government was to be placed upon his shoulders, the anointed one, the Messiah, he is precious to God. And all those that belong to God, he is precious to us. He is wonderful. Let them be accursed. They're condemned in their sins. And you need to know how to begin to pray for them and not just take their word that, yeah, I know Jesus. What, what is eternal life? Well, Jesus said eternal life is knowing the Father and the one whom he sent. Knowing him. Knowing him personally and intimately. Being known of him. And you can't know him and know him personally and intimately and not like him, not be fond of him. It's impossible. It's impossible to know Jesus and not love Jesus. It's impossible. It's impossible to know and love Jesus and not like Jesus, not be fond of him. It's impossible to know, love, and like, and be fond of Jesus and he not be precious to you. So anybody you know, whether that be yourself that are listening to this or anybody in your family personally that has made false professions of who they know and don't know and Jesus is not a treasure and the things that belong to Jesus are not a treasure and precious that are being built around that, you know you're dealing with somebody that doesn't know him. They don't have eternal life in them. They've not been born again. They do not treasure him. They are not a disciple of his. They are not a new creature in Christ Jesus. And therefore, I would encourage you to begin to pray and ask God to do a marvelous work where they too see just how exclusive and extraordinary and wonderful and marvelous that Jesus is. I think it's in Psalm 118, also reaffirmed and confirmed in Matthew 21. But in Psalm 18, it refers to, 118 refers to the fact that about this stone, that this was the marvelous work of God. This was God's work, and that work that he chose to do is marvelous in our eyes. It's wonderful. It's, it's extraordinary. Verse number 22 of Psalm 118 says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone, the most important stone built upon this foundation of him laying his life down for us. This was all the Lord's doing. This is the zeal of the Lord of hosts performing this. It is marvelous in our eyes. It is wonderful. 
And only through the grace of God can we see that which we were once hostile toward, once we used to hate and wanted nothing to do with, that was death to us, that it becomes marvelous. This is the work of the grace of God in the hearts of his people. Matthew 21, 42 affirms these things. Luke chapter 2 and verse 34 when he said that, hey, this child shall be for the rise and fall of many. Those who rise on him see that this is the unquestionable, undeniable, unfathomable work of Christ, the inexhaustible riches of Christ that is beyond limits. And we continue to pursue him, to know him and to know him more intimately. I want to tell you this son, this child, this anointed one, he shall be known as wonderful. But he also shall be known as counselor. Counselor. Yes, his exclusive life, wonderful. But his leadership, as a counselor and the words that he speaks into those that know he is wonderful is the difference between life and death. Let's just look at a couple of things that Jesus said himself in John chapter, John's gospel, but in John chapter six, look in verse number, uh, verse number 63, verse number 63. John six sixty three says, it is the spirit who gives life and the spirit must give life to us. Our flesh doesn't profit anything at all. It has no benefit. There is no profit in the flesh. It is what the spirit does in us that gives life to us, which is through the grace of God, which according to Titus was poured out upon us, that spirit through the Lord Jesus Christ, what he accomplished for us, that wonderful work that he has done. And he says these words, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. They are spirit and they are life. The counselor that we see his words, as Peter would say, Lord, where do we go? You have the words of life. The Bible teaches us, for an example, that blood to the body is life to the body. That without the flow of the blood in the body of a human, things die. That's what happens when uh, circulation gets cut off to certain areas of the body. When that takes place, flesh cannot survive cannot live without blood. And what does blood carry to the rest of the body? It carries oxygen. It brings life to the body. That blood has life in it, and that life in it is breath, it's oxygen. But for the spirit man, for the man that has been given life in the spirit, not in the flesh, but in the spirit, the one that's been born above, the one who this wonderful, marvelous work of God has done a work in their life, they see that Jesus has the words of life. His leadership, his counsel over our life is like blood in the body. His words are like that to the new man. They are spirit, they are breath, and they are blood. They are life to the new man. And without his words, we cannot 
live. We have to have his word spoken into us. It's like water, for an example. You take and cut flowers down and you put them in a vase and you don't put any water in that whatsoever. If you don't water a plant, that plant is going to wilt and it's going to fade and it's going to die. But as long as you keep water in it, they are going to stay sustained. And that's the same way. I don't know if you've ever figured this out before or even paid much attention to it. In this old life we live, live, we're going to come across both positive and negative everywhere we go. We're going to come across people who, who, are, who are sour and, and just negative and everywhere we go. They're going to pout. They're going to be full of pride. But have you ever noticed when sour people walk in a room, flowers don't wilt? Flowers don't wilt. As long as they fill with water, as long as they got something sustaining them, they're not going to wilt. And that's the same thing with you and I. We can be in, on a job somewhere, and all we are is surrounded by sour people. But you know, the words of life that Jesus speaks to us, the water of the living word of God is what's sustaining us and we're not going to wilt as long as we're under his fountain, under his counsel and your new man in you has to have the words of spirit in life. It carries the, the breath of God in us. It's going to be what sustains us. That's why Jesus said, let the words of Christ dwell richly within you. When Paul said that, let the words of Christ dwell richly within you. Why? They are like blood to the body. You, you, can't, you have to be sustained by his words because his word is truth. John 17, he, he says that. John 17, when Jesus in his priestly prayer is praying to the Father, he asked God to sanctify his people. And he says in verse number 17, sanctify them by your truth for your word is truth. The word of God is truth. And that word is continually setting us free from the lies and deception of this old world. And that word he speaks to us is both spirit, breath, oxygen, and blood, life that sustains the new man. You cannot live in this life as a believer and not be under the leadership and the counsel of him who is called counselor. It speaks of his plans in everyday life. Oh man, yes, his name is wonderful. His name is counselor. His life is exclusive and marvelous and treasured and precious. His leadership is life over us. His words are life to us. We are sanctified by his word. We receive the inheritance through that word of his grace. Paul talks about it in Acts chapter 20. Look in Acts chapter 20 with me if you would. Acts chapter 20 in verse number uh, 28 says that we're to take heed of the flock among us, which the Holy Spirit, who gives life, remember the flesh profits nothing, has made us overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own exclusive blood. Verse 32 says, Now, brethren, I commend you, I entrust you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up 
to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Yes, sanctified in Christ and sanctified through the truth. Sanctify your people, Lord, by your truth, for your word is truth. There's no way for us to receive the inheritance that we have in Christ. Everything that we need for life and godliness has been given to us in Christ Jesus. And that comes through the knowledge of him who called us through glory and virtue, through the exceeding and great and precious promises that we may escape the corruption that is in the world through the lust of the flesh. And that comes through him who we know as our counselor as our teacher, who is extraordinarily wonderful. But his name shall also be known, not only wonderful, not only counselor, but back in Isaiah 9, we shall know him as everlasting father. As a father, as a father who guides, who loves, who leads, who shapes, who molds, who has a purpose in every aspect of what he allows in the life of his children. I can't help but think of Romans 8, 28. That says, we know. We only know because of the counselor who has given us his truth, his counsel. We have knowledge of this. We know this. We are assured of this, is that we know that all things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to his purpose. What is the good that is being worked out by this father that we know that he uses both the good and the bad, the ugly and the beautiful. He doesn't waste one thing in our lives that we go through. He afflicts us at times. He comforts us at other times. But his affliction and his comfort are always to be redemptive, always that salvation goes forth and deliverance from our life, that he through tribulation, through patience, through character is building a hope in us that will not disappoint. That's why James says, look, you can count it all joy. You can add it all up as joy that the Father is at work producing a patience in you because that patience in you through the trouble that you're going through is going to build a character in you that looks more and more like Him. And that's exactly what Romans 8 is 28 is teaching, that the good that all that produces is verse 29, that He has predestined that we be conformed to the likeness of His Son. That is saying that everything our everlasting Father does in our life is to shape us and mold us, to transform us, that we look and smell and taste more and more like Him who we treasure, His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything is being used. Everything is shaping and molding us. Not it, but he's using everything in our life to shape us. Why? He's our counselor. <laughs> he's wonderful to us. He's a treasure to us. And we love him and are called according to his purpose. And he's using it all to make us more like Jesus. Go, go look in Romans 8. Let's just look there while we, we, we might as well take a peek at it. 
I don't know if we're going to get through Roman, excuse me, Isaiah 9, but I have learned to have fun by myself or with other people, and I pray you are having fun with me because these things are so beautiful and so rich and so worth looking into and walking in and believing and trusting I love this. I mean, look at this. You just want to circle that word, no. Romans 8, 28, for we know and we know. You got to know this by, by believing the truth, by experience of what God has done. All these things are, are known to us. We have this knowledge of this that all things work together for the good of those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose. That is, what, what is this good? That good is for whom he foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. All this is the divine work of God. And to him be the praise and the glory. Now watch. Now what, what is our response to the, knowing this? What shall we say then? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, remember Emmanuel is with us. Why? Because God is for us. That's the evidence of Emmanuel and of conforming us to his likeness. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all who were called who love him, who are called according to his purpose, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If he didn't spare his son, why will he hold back what is needful to make us more like his son? Why will he hold back, as Psalm 84.11 says, that God is both a son and a shield to us, and that he will withhold no good thing for them that walk uprightly. This is like saying the identical thing. That no good thing, no needful thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Them who love him and are called according to his purpose. He will not spare. He'll give us all that we need to be made into the image, to be shaped and molded. That's the work of an everlasting father. This is the work of the father in our life. This is his everlasting love at work in us that he's not going to spare anything. He didn't spare his son to see it happen, and he's not going to spare to give us what we need in his son to be made like his son. So therefore, he will withhold no good thing from us who walk uprightly. Now, the good thing is not always an easy thing. The good thing, matter of fact, can be a very hard thing. A good thing can be an impossible thing. A good thing can be a very, very painful thing. I think about Paul and the thorn in his flesh. That was a good thing God gave him. He didn't spare to give him what was needful to keep him humble. And, but at what he gave him that superseded the pain in his life was a sufficient grace. 
And it was all to make him more and more like his son. That's the work of an everlasting father. Did Paul ask God to remove that messenger of the enemy, that thorn in the flesh that was buffeting him? Sure, he asked God to remove it. But God said, Paul, I'm not going to fix this, but I'm going to fix you. I'm going to fix you for this. And I'm going to fix you for this with my grace. My grace is sufficient for you to bear this, for you love me and you are called according to my purpose. I did not spare my son and I will not spare anything good that you need to be made more like my son. I'm not fixing it. So quit asking me to fix it. But I will fix you for it because I am your everlasting father. That is the work of this child who was born and this son who was given. I think about 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, uh, my life verse. It begins in verse number 14. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 says, For the love of Christ, who is our everlasting Father. Hard to explain, no doubt about it. But Jesus said, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, for I and the Father are one. For the love of Christ compels us. Because we judged us that if one died for all, then all died. And he, our everlasting father, died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Paul said, we conclude then, therefore from now on, we don't look at anybody in the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all these things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and he has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us that word, that message of reconciliation. Not only do we have the means of reconciliation. Not only do we have the ministry of reconciliation, uh, we have the message, the gospel, the message, Jesus himself, the message of reconciliation. Now then we are, as a result, ambassadors for Christ. As though God was pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled unto God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Oh, what a treasure. What an everlasting love of our everlasting Father. The scripture says in Jeremiah chapter 31, he was telling his people in that day, God says that he has said and proven from old 
that he has loved us with an everlasting love. Therefore, he has drawn us with his loving kindness. He has drawn us with his loving kindness. I want to tell you, back in Isaiah 9, we see that his name is wonderful. His name is Counselor. His name is Mighty God and Everlasting Father. So let's look at that word, Mighty God, for a moment. That is that lion-heartedness of this triumphal king who triumphed over darkness and over sin who commands and calls his people. Well, I think it's in Isaiah 42. Look in Isaiah 42, if you would. Isaiah 42, look in verse number 13. Verse number 13, this prophetic picture of the Lord. It says, the Lord shall go forth like a mighty man. He shall stir up zeal, a zealousness, like a man of war, like a great general, like a captain on the battlefield. He shall cry out, yes, he shall, he shall shout aloud, and he shall prevail against the voice of his enemies. Though his people seemed outnumbered, so his people seem minute in this world, and though the world is coming against them, that this mighty God that we serve, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, who is like a great and commanding general, the greatest of commanding generals, who gives a word, and that word does something in the heart of his champions, in the heart of his warriors, who are dangerously strong for the truth upon the earth. And there is a passion and the zeal to look beyond the threats of the enemy, to look beyond the power of the enemy, to look beyond the weapons of the enemy, to look beyond all that because they know that, look, when God be for us, who can be against us? That he never, ever, ever considers the odds and that he stirs up within his people to be champions of his message of reconciliation, his message to reconcile this mission that we've been given, this means that we've been given in the gospel. We have his message and we stand up like a lion-hearted champion with him. As, as Proverbs teaches us that the wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are as bold as a lion because we go in the command, in the strength, being sent out in the authority and power of the Lord Jesus Christ. All authority and power has been given to him. Like Ephesians chapter 3 says that, that we know that he is more than able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever ask or think through the power that works within us. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, look in Hebrews 13 in verse number 20 and 21. These are some of my favorite verses as well. They just encourage me and bless me every time I read them. But he says in his close, as the writer writes to in the Hebrews 13, 20 says, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of his everlasting covenant, may he make you complete. May he make you complete. Complete in what? In every good work. To do what? 
His will. How is he going to do it? Working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight. How? Through, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. I want to tell you, we serve a mighty God who is the everlasting Father, who is him who is called wonderful and our counselor. Yes, and we call or know as the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace. You know, God's peace comes to us. Peace has three dimensions in it or, or three ways. One, we have peace with God. That's when we were reconciled to him through Christ. Then we have peace from God. That is, that is the, uh, what we've learned from him. As Paul would say in Romans 8 that we've already said, we know that these things work together for the good. We know that. We know that because we know the truth. And that is where we have peace in what we know. As, as Isaiah 26, 3 says, that God will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed upon him because he what? He trusts in him. Well, we trust God's word. And when we trust God's word, we have peace from God. God sustains us in that peace, that perfect peace. Paul said, for an example, in Philippians, when he says, look, I've learned, God has learned me. That learning strengthened me. And I know that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How did he strengthen him? By, by learning him, by teaching him through the things that he went through, that he can go through things, he can have things, there can be things taken from him, he could be abased or he can have abundance. That was regardless. That didn't matter why. God had taught him. He had learned. And through that, he had contentment. And contentment and gladness go hand in hand. And you can't be content nor glad if you don't have peace. And that peace comes from what we know from God, what he gave us and we're trusting. When we trust him, that is accounted to righteousness. And as Isaiah 32, 17 teaches us that forever righteousness will work this away. It is the chief business of righteousness to keep us at peace, settled, undisturbed. And that is what righteousness does. And righteousness only comes through faith. And faith only comes from hearing from God. And, and faith is putting faith in what we hear from Him. So we, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace from God in having His light and His revelation working in our life, trust in Him. But then there is the peace of God. The peace of God for which Philippians talks about and those unknown things, things that we just don't know, we can't see. In Philippians chapter 4, notice what he says here. Philippians 4, Philippians 4, in verse number 8. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always again. I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be made known to all men, for the Lord is at hand. He says, Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and thanks, by prayer and supplications with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. 
Give it over to him. Don't be anxious about him. Turn it over to him. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So when we are in that unknown, uh, in the dark, we don't know what to do. We don't know how to get it done. We don't have a clear word other than that we're not to be anxious and we're to give it over to him and we're to trust him. And when we do, we're, we're walking in the peace from God, but then God goes to another level and we have the peace of God and operate in a realm that he operates in that guards our heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Oh, and him be the glory. See, I, I have peace with Jesus because of what he's accomplished for me. I have peace from him because I trust his word and his ways and walk in what he's given me and learning from day to day. But there's things that I can't see nor know or do that I need the peace of God. But I can't expect the peace of God if I'm not walking in peace from God. And there's no way to have peace from God if I'm not at peace with him. He is the prince of peace. And that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, he will be known as the Prince of Peace. He'll be known as the Everlasting Father. He'll be known as Mighty God. He will be known as Counselor. He'll be known as Wonderful. And all to the praise and the glory of God's redeeming grace. Oh, I pray you know this God-man that I'm talking about. I pray you know Jesus and that you trust him and that you walk him with him. Because I want to tell you, the increase of his government, he's making subjects today. And when the subject's made to him, they can't help but see him as wonderful. They're going to come to him for his counsel. They're going to rely upon his might and his ableness and his strength. They're going to seek him and his great love's going to compel them and they are going to rest in the light of his peace, and he is going to guard them and their mind. Oh, we want to walk with him. You know who's going to work all these things out? Yes, it's going to be God, because the zeal of the Lord of hosts will make sure that it all happens. It is God who is at work. If there's anything ever done in and for and through the glory of Christ in song or word, every missionary sent by Jesus every message preached for Jesus, every song sung for Jesus, every taught lesson done to equip men for Jesus and teach men about Jesus is all the result of the zeal of the Lord of hosts at work. The question would be, is that consuming passion, that burning, that fire, that zealousness of God for his bride, for his sheep, for his disciples, is it burning in my heart to see that Jesus is his precious cornerstone and that everyone or anyone that will ever go to the Father must come through him. I just encourage you to entrust your life to Jesus. We'll pick this up again. God bless y'all.